Well, thank you for those kind words, and thank you all for coming uh, this evening. Uh, it is indeed a pleasure to talk about uh, René Cassin, uh, an individual uh, who has been virtually forgotten uh, in his own country, uh, and um, indeed has achievements which uh, deserve our attention, uh, our respect, and our critical engagement. Uh, what I want to do is to tell you about this man in terms of the origins of the contribution he made, the fundamental contribution, in orchestrating the extraordinary collection of individuals who um, wrote the Universal Declaration. On the 10th of December, 1948, the Universal Declaration was passed without a negative vote by the United Nations General Assembly in Paris. Uh, and that was an astonishing achievement. If you think of 1948, December, it's the last uh, shot in the alliance, the Grand Alliance that defeated the Nazis and destroyed Hitler's Germany. Um, and it was very much the last moment where anyone could have done that. Um, I think the construction of this document, which, as I said, is an astonishing achievement, was not Cassin's achievement alone, but he was very much like um, a, um, uh, a conductor of an orchestra, each of whose music musical members were rewriting uh, the, the score as he was conducting them and then performing it to an audience UN delegates who also changed the music at the same time. So to claim that he was the author of the Universal Declaration is false. Uh, he was the man who made it happen. He was the conductor of an astonishing uh, symphony uh, that immediately disbanded and fought the Cold War. It's the very last moment in which a declaration of the kind uh, that existed on the 10th of December 1948 uh, could have been achieved. And I think probably René Cassin was the only one who could have pulled it off. I want to explain a bit how he got there. Was it the Holocaust that put him there? Uh, or was it other parallel movements? Now, my, my interpretation is that René Cassin's commitment to human rights is an outcome of his military service in the First World War. What the Holocaust did uh, was to, and indeed what anti-Semitism of various kinds in France did, alongside the Holocaust was turn him from being a Jewish Republican into a Republican Jew. That is to say, he was transformed in the law of his own country. Uh, and uh, finally, he was uh, sentenced to death in absentia for having joined forces with de Gaulle in London and Free France. Uh, that achievement was politically possible because of the Holocaust. But the intellectual achievement, the foundation of it, comes out of the First World War and out of the League of Nations, in which there were many jurists like Cassin who were committed to rethinking the theory of state sovereignty. The assumption is that the only way in which to make impossible a catastrophe like the First World War was to develop a theory of what might be described as partial state sovereignty. State sovereignty abridged so that individuals who run states cannot abuse their own citizens or the citizens of, a, of an adjacent country uh, in the way in which uh, the Nazis uh, did. Now, the importance of the Second World War and the Holocaust is important, and the Jewish life of René Cassin actually starts with persecution. 
and I'll come to that story in a moment. But I do want to tell you this story with a, as it were, with a, a kind of um, uh, delighted amusement because this book is in basically two entirely different forms. In 2011, together uh, with my old friend, the great historian Antoine Pro, uh, I wrote this in French. And at the end of the uh, day, when, when it came out, four members of the family came, rang me up to say, that was really a good book. Would you like to see the papers? Would, you, would it be interesting for you to read the letters of René Cassin now? And nobody had said anything of the kind of one of the members of the family was uh, over her dead body would I be able to get uh, this material. But this story that I'm going to show you is in part a result of the fact that it passed muster to the family who, you know, what is he to heck you about? No one had any idea who I was. And these individuals, one of whom is 102 now, um, Susie Abram, the daughter of René Cassin's sister, uh, and his best friend who married her, had four children, and then died in 1916 during the Battle of Verdun from an anti-tetanus injection, um, leaving a wife and four children uh, basically to, to find ways of supporting themselves. This, these are the people who have created the story I'm going to tell you tonight, uh, which is the story that exists in the English version of the book, which is, is, is definitely uh, a rewrite for a whole series of reasons. Just to give you one example before turning to the narrative, Along the way, after Raoul Abram, his brother-in-law, had died, I wrote in the French uh, version, um, Cassin saw the suffering of his family and um, then decided to create an institution for France. This is called Les Pupilles de la Nation, Wards of the Nation. Uh, the word orphans in French means someone who's lost his father. And what the state does is to stand in, especially for uh, young uh, farmers' sons who need land in order to marry, in order to start a family and so on. So the state provided a whole series uh, of projects and programs uh, to deal uh, with the 800,000 uh, families that were torn apart uh, as a result of the First World War in France. So I wrote that. And then Susie Abram, 102, uh, uh, when I went to see her and took some of the photographs, uh, turned to me and said, this is complete nonsense. You have to get rid of this sentence. Because René Cassin never did anything for us. He did it for the nation. He didn't do it for us. Now, to understand family history is to disbelieve family members. All of us know that. But she had something important that I could only have understood. The second example is René Cassin married twice in his life, one in 1917 uh, and one four months before he died in 1975. Uh, he fell in love with a, a former screen actress um, during the Blitz, actually in the basement of Bush House where he was stuck during one ferocious bombardment. And he fell in love with this woman who really was, you'll, you'll meet her a little bit later, quite extraordinary. Um, and her daughter from her first marriage uh, inherited her mother's letters, but never opened them. So after the, she read the book uh, and said, that was a good book, would you like to see the letters? What I found were 500 love letters of René Cassin to this woman um, from the Blitz on, and if, if this throws an entirely different light for me on the, uh, the story of solidarity under fire in London in, in 1940. Uh, this is simply to tell you that the, the way that families um, dominate historical writing is something we should never forget, that we are only able to do what we do because we escape from the public record office 
in order to find a whole range of materials uh, that come from uh, family collections. This has been true. I've been working on the First World War for over four decades. It's, I've, I've learned this more and more as time has gone on. Now let me tell you more that I've learned about this man, René Cassin, uh, to put him uh, on the podium of the General Assembly of the United Nations in 1948. This is uh, what he looked like at that time. He won the Nobel Peace Prize 20 years later. He was president of the European Court of Human Rights. He is very much um, a man who realized the necessity of the regionalization of the human rights movement after the Cold War had frozen the United Nations Human Rights Commission into basically a, 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 a talking shop without any, uh, any fundamental power. Now, I think what we should appreciate that is in between the First World War and this moment where we see him, uh, his life unfolded in a way that no one had any idea about. And the, one of the great, uh, it's not so much a pleasure, but uh, an honor uh, was to write a biography uh, which showed how little all of us know about the topography of our lives while we're living them. Cassin was a man who believed that his life was over four or five times, and I'll show you those moments where he believed he had done nothing of any significance. And then uh, the doors that had just closed, another one opened, and a turn to his life uh, occurred in ways that he could not have imagined. The man who did uh, the fundamental work of making the, human the Universal Declaration of Human Rights possible never imagined that he would be in that position to do it. Now let me tell you a bit about where he came from. Let's see if I can get it right. Born in 1887, this is his father, Henri Cassin, age 95. Probably in his latter years, the, the biggest and richest wine merchant in France. He didn't start that way, but he had a major advantage. The major advantage was that his grandfather uh, struck it rich. He won the pools in 1856 and turned a family from Nice, which was moderately prosperous, into a family with very desirable sons of marriageable age. And this family in the southwest of, uh, rather in the, in the south of France, was very Mediterranean, very much Mediterranean. They lived in a world uh, where uh, uh, the area around Nice had been French only since 1860, and in which the, as it were, the littoral extending to Italy and to Spain was part and parcel of the lilting voice of uh, Mediterranean French. Now, this individual, together with his brother, um, who was called Benjamin Cassin, were sent by their father to find wives. And the place to do it was a highly respectable and prosperous town of Bayonne in the southwest of France. And what the two of them found was a family called Dreyfus, not of that same uh, brand, as it were, but of, of uh, Alsatian origins, who had been there for over 100 years. And he not only found the family, he found these two women. Believe it or not, these are identical twins who throughout their lives wore the same clothes, the same shoes, and the same uh, wigs over their heads, both of them being married women. They were assimilated Jews who had, as it were, the elements of orthodoxy within their assimilated lives. Now, the balance between assimilation uh, and Jewish observance 
wrecked the marriage. Why? Because the man we saw before, Azaria, who liked to be French and therefore called himself Henri throughout his life, uh, was a free thinker and refused to observe the Shabbat. Uh, he didn't think much of Kashrut as well. Uh, his father-in-law didn't like it one bit and actually managed to not pay him the dowry inscribed in the Ketuvah. This brought Henri Cassin and his wife, Gabrielle, this is Cécile, Cécile on the left and Gabrielle on the right. I confuse them all the time. But nonetheless, uh, Josette Cassin, who's a mere 93, told me who was who, um, brought them to separate. That is to say, the one brother, um, Benjamin, stayed in Bayonne with Cécile. And the other brother, Henri, moved with Gabrielle back to Nice to stay away from his in-laws. It's an old Jewish story. And the important part about that was that the uh, relationship between Henri Cassin and Gabrielle, his wife, continued to deteriorate because of the question of observance. The two of these women had identical prayer books, which they used every single uh, day for elements of Shacharit, for elements of Ma'ariv, really not, not all that much. And when I asked Josette Cassin, who as I say is a mere 93, um, and is the daughter of his brother, Fadia, whom I'll introduce you to in a minute. Um, what is it that was at the core of uh, their Jewish values? And, and she said, Monsieur Winter, c'est la grande bouffe. It's Jewish food, which is the most important thing that defined, and, and their special recipes from, from uh, Nice or from Bayonne that differentiated them from the vulgar Jews further north in Paris and, uh, and elsewhere. Now, the important thing to realize is these children, these four children, uh, there's a fifth one down at the bottom who I've uh, uh, learned is one of the cousins, but the, the four children uh, grew up in a world uh, dominated uh, by the Dreyfus Affair. Their, their early lives, um, this is in 1892, when they went to school in, uh, in Nice, Roughly at the time of 1896-1897, the beginnings of the Dreyfus Affair was a dominant test for what the Republic meant, what it could mean, what it might mean, and not only for Jews. It was for the idea of being a Republican was, was ultimately at issue here. And so the notion of natural justice and the injustice of the state is something that René Cassin knew from a very early on. A very early on. Uh, the League of the Rights of Man is something that he supported from very early on as well. Now here is René and his sister Yvonne in Nice in 1900. Uh, Yvonne was one of 26 members of the Cassin family uh, deported to Drancy and murdered in Auschwitz. Uh, the family in 1900 had absolutely no idea uh, that the danger of anti-Semitism would come from Germany. They thought it was coming from France. And if there was to be a disaster, it was more likely to be in France than enlightened Germany, which is, one of the, I think, one of the most interesting features of his early upbringing is the admiration of German culture for being a place where Jewish life and reformed Jewish life, very much open to uh, development, uh, was there in a way that the consistoire in Paris would not have accepted uh, one bit. Now here's uh, Cassin as a student in Aix, uh, where he studied uh, law and history. His, his view is that law is contemporary history. It's an interesting idea. That law is history, but of today, whereas history is law yesterday. 
Um, it's a, a definition of the subject that has certain German origins again, uh, but it's one in which he did very, very well indeed in the Lycée Masséna in Nice and had uh, an extraordinary group of people around him. You see, there is, he, he even marked himself. If I had a, uh, a red light and show his own um, attempt to identify himself among his, his law students. The place for them, of course, was to do their licence, their first degree in X, and then go to Paris like everybody else. Paris was everything. Now, within the family, there were these two poles. His mother um, loved to go back to Bayonne. His father hated to go back to Bayonne. Uh, but the family uh, cottage uh, was a place where everybody in this very large Mediterranean family uh, came every summer. Uh, and what's extraordinary about it is to realize uh, that this uh, was a cottage that has an extraordinarily complicated history uh, during the period of spoliation juive in the Second World War. It was one of the properties uh, that was Aryanized, and once Aryanized, uh, turned into cash, if possible. But it showed something that I want to mention right away from the early period. Uh, the history of, uh, of Vichy is very complex, and I'm not an expert in it. Uh, the history of spoliation juive is, is even more complicated. But one of the things that I think you should appreciate here is that Jews who were fully acculturated, that is where they had deep roots, they were dug in to uh, pr provincial society, into towns and villages and cities like Nice and like Bayonne, had all kinds of friends. And there were three notaires. In France, notaries do everything, absolutely everything. And they're very important people. Someday somebody should go, and I've looked at these walls of notary uh, boxes of what notaries do in France. is the history of property for a thousand years. It's absolutely astonishing to see. And what these notaries did was stall for the entire period of the war. They argued that, well, the property belonged to one of the sisters but not the other, and maybe a cousin had a share of it too. They were able to stall until liberation so that the theft of this property from the Cassin family was frustrated by Christian notaries who did it for them. Now, this, this, this is an important point to bear in mind, because when I said that he was a Jewish Republican, it meant that the Jewish part of his life was secondary until the Nazis put it first. Nonetheless, there were literally thousands of individuals who suffered from the maltreatment of their neighbors. I don't want to, uh, to idealize this picture. But there is another side of the story. And the other side of the story was what I would call administrative obstruction of the plans of Vichy and the Nazis to steal every single piece of Jewish property in the country. It's, it's a story not well known, and the literature in some ways is tilted the other way, naturally so, to talk about the victims. But the Cassin family was not one, and Rachel, Rachel Cottage, Rachel Cottage, because of this British owner, uh, had come before, survived the war without any damage whatsoever. It was, not, it was not just not, never sold, it was kept for the family until they could come back. And by that time, by the way, Cassin had been sentenced to death in absentia for his work for, for France Libre. So there is something about the assimilation of Jewish life that is at the core of his vision uh, of a legal order and, and what the law should be. Now, in 1914, all has changed. And this is a, a medical certificate uh, from uh, the uh, area of, uh, of southern France where his um, military service began and ended. The French uh, medical uh, system 
broke down in the early months of the First World War. The rule was, and it had been set up by Napoleon, that individuals who uh, were mobilized would go to the Kassan or the barracks in their particular area where they had done their military service before, and they would come back to it victorious, dead, or they would be wounded and treated at the local hospital. That's the normal tradition of, um, of French medical care. What happened to René Cassin? He went north uh, with the company of his future wife, whom I think I can find in a moment. There she is, Simone. This is in 1915. But he went basically uh, down to Antibes to join up. But before he went, he took his uh, fiancée uh, to the local mairie. Why? Because his mother and father, by that time divorced, his mother objected to his relationship to this non-Jewish woman from uh, niece, no, actually from ex, and refused uh, to bless his marriage to her. So he didn't marry, and given perhaps his lawyer's training, he decided to protect his fiancée by begging her and then forcing her to register as his concubine in Paris, which didn't please her one iota, but gave her a pension in case he would die. In 1917, he told his mother, enough is enough, and he married uh, Simon uh, Isambard uh, at that time. But before then, as you see, he was a soldier of the Great War. And my interpretation of his life is that he never stopped being a soldier of the Great War. The important point is that he served his country in 1914, before the trench warfare started, and wound up, along with a platoon of men, in the east of France, near Saint-Mihiel, not where the great movement of the Battle of the Marne happened, but in its penumbra, and was outflanked by a German machine gun unit to such an extent that literally the outflanking meant that every single member of his, of his platoon uh, was either wounded or killed. He was hit three times. He was hit in the arm, he lost a bit of his hip, and he had an abdomen wound. And everybody in the uh, First World War and probably later realized that an abdomen wound, a stomach wound, is lethal. Now comes the story of the French medical service. What is the rule? Antibes, joined up, you come back victorious, dead, or that's where you're treated. He's, he's near uh, the German border in the north of France, 800 kilometers away. What does he have to do? He has to get on cart and railway to make the journey to Antibes in order to be treated. Now, this took three days. Um, and in those three days, he had the good sense of eating and drinking nothing, because had he eaten or drunk something, uh, infection would have taken his life. Um, imagine the discipline. Imagine the suffering. He gets to Antibes, and the doctors, and this is the, 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 the document that I was showing you a little bit earlier. Let's see where it is. Oh, no, it's the last one here. There it is. The doctors were so shocked at his, his condition that they operated in five minutes without anesthesia. Uh, and later on he said that uh, the fact that he survived was quite a surprise to him and to them, uh, but that he had been operated on 
a less sensitive part of his body. Now, what that means, where's the more sensitive part, I have no idea. But the, the critical thing to bear in mind is that he had been prepared and almost gave his life for his country, for his nation. This is very important because he spent most of his life trying to curtail the absolute state sovereignty of nations like France. But he almost died in defense of it. And the reason why we can move from one to the other is that in the course of his recovery, here we see him with, with uh, Simon um, on, on crutches because of uh, the abdominal wound. He literally couldn't stand up. Uh, because in the course of the year in which he recovered from the wounds that he had suffered, he met hundreds of fellow invalids, mutilés de la Grande Guerre, they called themselves, who created the French veterans movement. They created something called the Federal Union, the Union Fédérale. And it's the Union, uh, Union Fédérale des Mutilés de Guerre, of wounded men. And what they said was that men who had bled for their country have a right to a decent pension and to medical care, and that that right is the same for those against whom they fought. In other words, a prisoner of war had the right to medical care and to decent treatment in the same sense and to the same level that he himself had had. Here we, we clearly find echoes of the work of the Red Cross in 1859. Henri uh, uh, Dunant, who had walked across the battlefield of Solferino and saw the horrible condition of wounded men and so on, uh, had set in motion a uh, way of approaching the victims of war in which placed their humanity before their citizenship. And the group that he created, the Union Fédérale, became one of the central carriers of a message. The message was no charity, rights. That we have rights. We don't have, as it were, a case for charity. Now, years ago, when I, I did a book on the Great War and the British people, I came across a, a case of a man named Henry Lusmore, who won the Victoria Cross in 1917 for doing some very remarkable things. Now, Henry Lusmore came home uh, to Nottingham and um, married his fiancée, very much like René Cassin, very much, very similar. Uh, uh, the difference was that six years later, uh, Lusmore died of his wounds. There was no question about the cause of his death. He died of the wounds that he suffered in saving the lives of three other British soldiers. They marry, he dies. His widow applies for a pension, a widow's pension, and gets back an answer from the uh, appropriate authorities, the Ministry of Pensions, uh, that I'm afraid your application is turned down on the grounds that you married a damaged man. Had you married him before the war, of course the state would live up to its obligation, but you know what you were getting into, and therefore we deny your claim. There were other extraordinary examples um, that indicate a, a, a line of thinking that perhaps will help you see the argument uh, that I'm trying to make better than anything else. In 1918, Cassin and his group of the Federal Union were able to create something uh, called uh, the Charter of Pensions. And that charter established a principle that exists in France and nowhere else in the world. The charter says, that a wounded man who makes a claim that his wound was a result of the war has that claim established by his making it. 
it is up to the state to disprove it. Whereas in the British and the Italian and the Russian and the Israeli and the Australian case, the ones that I know about, it's exactly the opposite. It is that the individual has to prove that he had no pre-existing condition. The burden of proof in France is on the state to disprove the claim. The burden of proof in Britain was on the soldier, the mutilated soldier, the wounded man, to prove that he's not cheating the state. And it was an extraordinary achievement because 80% of the men who fought in the First World War in France and elsewhere were, were peasants, they were farmers. They didn't have the education to go through the hoops of bureaucracy. Of course the same was true for soldiers in Italy, but they had a legal system which was, as it were, stacked against them. Cassin believed that soldiers had the human right to make a claim and have it believed by virtue of the fact that they made it. And it, it, as I say, there's nowhere else in the world uh, where indeed uh, this uh, is the case. Now, here is, this, here is the, the, uh, the children of his, uh, his sister, uh, Felice. The, the woman in the middle uh, is 102. Uh, Susie Abram, living in uh, Digne, a beautiful town not very far from Aix-en-Provence. Uh, and they are the family around whom um, René Cassin spent the first part of his life. Well, what established him as a figure in the law? First of all, he finished his education after uh, surviving from his wounds in the French uh, system. You do a doctorate first, and then you do what's called the aggregation afterwards. In other professions, it works the other way around. But he did his aggregation in 1919 and chose to be a professor in Lille. Why? Because it was the most damaged part of France. His patriotism, his love of France was unquestionable, even though his commitment to truncating the sovereignty of the very state his love, love developed in this particular period. In 1924, he was named... Uh, as the delegate to the League of Nations in the French delegation representing veterans. There was a chair at the table in the League of Nations for veterans. Now, it strikes me as an extraordinary uh, achievement. And the reason why he was able to, to, to take this line, to develop this line of the League of Nations, was that he defined um, the work of veterans organizations as pacifist in character. He created a pacifist veterans movement that had over three million members in it. Now, the, you know, the, the history of the British Legion is the charitable response. When I first came to, to Britain in 1965, I was flabbergasted that poppies, the poppy sales generated so much money for disabled men. Why is that not the duty of the state, I asked. Why? Because civil society is more important than the state in, um, uh, in Britain, many, many people told me. Uh, in my education sentimentale of living in Britain. Uh, well, Cassin saw, saw it differently. It's not the business of civil society or charitable organizations to support those who lost their arms or their legs or their faces or their minds. It's the business of the state to give these men their rights, not uh, the charitable handouts that, um, uh, that they were likely to get otherwise. Now, in the League of Nations, Cassin met an extraordinary group of people, lawyers from all over, who believed fundamentally that the League was too weak to act to defend the peace. Why? Because the League was based upon the theory of state sovereignty, absolute state sovereignty. All of the members of the League had their state sovereignty unquestioned. 
and his uh, group of people that included Edward Benesch, future foreign minister and um, pr president of Czechoslovakia. Uh, it included a, a, a range of individuals he later got to know very well. Anthony Eden was a close friend as a result of his membership in the League. We're discussing how to escape from the trap of absolute state sovereignty. This is where the ideas of the Universal Declaration uh, basically uh, came uh, to uh, fruition. And what he did was to develop a series of arguments in a wonderful place that's still in existence in The Hague. It's called the Hague Academy of International Law. And in this place, annual lectures on sovereignty uh, were published year after year uh, in order to raise the question of what kind of future the League of Nations was likely to have. These are individuals who realized that they were in an institution that had potential for the future, but in its initial framework, it was uh, very weak uh, indeed. Now, during the, um, uh, the time that he was in the League, René Cassin had a very bad um, uh, brush with an infection of his former wounds. I'll see if I can find you that. But that actually happened in the middle of this, of this story. What he was able to do as a League delegate before he fell ill was to bring Germany into the League of Nations through the back door. The back door was the ILO, the BIT in French, the International Labor Organization. The International Labor Organization had uh, wounded veterans all over it, and they were committed to providing uh, the best uh, information about prosthetic developments and about uh, social services available to all wounded veterans. And after all, there were 35 million wounded veterans of the First World War uh, all over the world. And of course, when they had a conference in the, in the ILO in 1924 and 1925, what possible argument could there be not to invite the Austrian and the German veterans movement to come and participate and tell about their experience. It wasn't getting them into the League of Nations through the front door, through saying that they have to be there to preserve the peace, which would have made imminent good sense, but it was getting them in through the back door. And this was the precedent before uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the work of his, you know, his, his fellow delegate, uh, Briand, and elsewhere into recognizing that a, an organization without Germany is an organization without a future. Now, the 1920s work he did was by setting up an organization called CIAMAC, which is the International Association, again, of mutilés et anciens combattants. Notice the presence of the wounded are first. The, the veterans come before the vet, uh, sorry, the mutilated, the wounded come before the veterans. They both have rights, but rights of a different kind. Here's an example of a, of a Congress. Uh, honneur aux victimes de la guerre. Uh, a ancien combattant, do you see the presence of victims of war before veterans? My interpretation is that part of his work as a, a human rights lawyer, as a jurist, is to use the law uh, to repair the damage done to the victims of war. I'll return to that point uh, in a few minutes. And here he comes, almost dead, in 1936. And here he wrote, oh, uh, let's see if I've, I've got it, I meant to bring it. Yes, he, look at this thing. He wrote a will and testament, but he was too much of a lawyer to call it that. So he says, N'ouvrir qu'en cas de décès, only open in the case of death. Ce n'est pas un testament. You know, this is, this is not a, a surrealist statement about a pipe. It's a, it's a lawyer saying, 
just hold on, this is not the way I'm going to distribute the property and so on. Uh, and what was in it was an extraordinary letter saying, my life has produced nothing. I've wasted it. All of the uh, uh, work that I've done for the League of Nations now is being torn to pieces by the Nazis. The Nazis withdrew. Germany withdrew from the League of Nations. Italy withdrew from the League of Nations because of the Abyssinia uh, problem. Uh, and what was left of his attempt to create an international veterans movement? Absolutely nothing. Uh, this is one of the points in which he said was, well, maybe somebody else can pick up this work in 50 years. Uh, certainly uh, not me. And when he was on holiday recovering uh, from his wounds, he had a second attempt to say, I've done nothing in my life. It's been absolutely hopeless. Uh, in which he uh, spoke, this is in uh, Rachel Cottage in the south of France, uh, with his brother uh, Fedia. Now, of course, none of us could have predicted what happened in 1940, uh, but immediately after the breakdown of the uh, French government following the defeat of the French army in May 1940, René Cassin realized that his, his days as a, a lawyer were over. By then he was professor of law in Paris. He taught civil law uh, between uh, 1928 and 1940 in Paris and realized that he had no future there. In part, it's because of the dean of the law school, a man named Ripard, uh, uh, who was a very convinced anti-Semite, that he realized teaching law is not something that was going to happen. In the, his teaching law was not something that was going to happen in the future. The question is what to do. And he went down, this is all the man, the man himself is, is really part of his story. He went back to Bayonne, you know, where a lot of his family to Rachel Cottage. And he did two things. One is he took a bit of the soil of Rachel Cottage and, and put it in a little bag and put it in his pocket. And then he paid his taxes. Could you imagine someone having that sense of Republican uh, legality to pay your taxes to a government that no longer exists? It's, it, 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 in so many respects, it captures this strange mixture of Republican uh, uprightness, which he represented throughout his life. And then he had a choice. There were two boats he could have taken. One to, it was called the Massilia, to uh, Morocco, and the other was to London. And he chose to go to London because he had a lot of friends there from the League of Nations, Anthony Eden being one of them. Had he gone to the Massilia, he would have been imprisoned immediately because on that boat, uh, were uh, Georges Mandel, uh, Jean Zay, the Jewish leaders of the Popular Front in France. And they were all arrested and imprisoned for the rest of the war. Both Mandel and Jean Zay were murdered in the course of their imprisonment. Uh, others were simply uh, kept, uh, as it were, as, uh, as, as uh, barter chips, like uh, Leon Blum, who was in a, a hunting lodge right next to Buchenwald throughout the war. So had he turned left, his life would have been over. But he turned right, and he went on an Australian troop ship um, uh, and, uh, on which uh, he met a, a number of very interesting people, one of whom was, was Raymond Aron. And they got off at Plymouth. He was there with his wife. They had no English. He, he didn't know any English at all. His wife, knew, well, he knew a few words of English uh, from the League of Nations days, but she knew none. And immediately, they were all screened by British police for internment purposes, who would be the spies among them. There were people who were very much, uh, shall we say, shadowy figures at the time. And they asked him, is there anybody here who could um, vouch for you? And he said to the policeman in halty English, you can try Anthony Eden. Uh, and that, uh, the man didn't believe him. 
but he gave his calling card. You know, he had the card from the League of Nations and said, ring this number. He rang up Eden and said, of course, let the man go. And he, when he let him go, they got on a train to London. And in London, he gets, uh, as it were, uh, greeted uh, by a small group of people surrounding de Gaulle who had set up literally a week before. This is the 28th of June had set up a week before an organization they called France Libre, Free France, that nobody knew anything about. On the 18th of June, 1940, de Gaulle made on the BBC French service a famous uh, speech that nobody heard. Millions of people claimed to hear it later on, but believe me, nobody heard it at the time. And Cassin was one of those who never heard it. The, 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 the message was, France has lost a, bat lost a battle, not a war. What we need to do is to wait until the United States gets into the war, and then the United States will carry us to victory. That's what it says. Cassin never heard it. He gets to London. He gets a message to speak to um, uh, de Gaulle. Uh, and he had known de Gaulle only indirectly. De Gaulle's son, who, who passed away not long ago, uh, was one of his law students in Paris. And so he goes to St. Stephen's um, house, which is just... Um, opposite Westminster, and he meets de Gaulle, who had three or four aides around him, maybe Free France was 50 people at the time, and de Gaulle said, you've come at the perfect moment. Um, I have a meeting tomorrow uh, with Winston Churchill to create Free France, and I need a lawyer to write up the contract. It's that simple, and de Gaulle then immediately, to his, to his credit, and when we think about 1967, we should bear this in mind, Cassin said, you know, I'm the leader of the veterans movement and I'm a Jew. And uh, de Gaulle said, uh, that's of no consequence. And throughout his time in, uh, in London, Free France and Algiers, um, there were many anti-Semites in France Libre, but de Gaulle was not one of them. He was untouched by the anti-Semitism of his Catholic origins, completely untouched by it. And when he decided to speak out against Israel and to use those ridiculous words, you know, of, that the, the Jews are a stiff-necked people and all of that, that was entirely out of character of his life before. Uh, I can uh, answer some questions about wh what my interpretation is of what he was doing at the time uh, uh, later on. Now, this is, this is one of the moments, the many moments, in which Cassin both had his hopes raised and dashed. Could you imagine 24 hours to write the contract that gave the cash that created the French resistance? What an uh, unbelievable turn of events. And when he went to, to do it, uh, de Gaulle asked him to be, as it were, the legal administrator of the whole of the Free French Movement. And he worked in the core of France Libre throughout this time. This is when he fell in love with his second wife, Guylaine, as I said, I'll introduce you to a little bit later. But during this period, and I think it's extraordinary, he did all kinds of things that a foreign minister does. The important thing to realize is that he had already had 14 years of diplomatic experience in the League of Nations. He knew all, everybody. He knew all the exiles. He knew the British veterans movement. He knew everyone. And as a result of that, he was able to, shall we say, temper the outrageous arrogance of Charles de Gaulle. Uh, de Gaulle was a man whose impotence, because of the weakness of his position, uh, bred arrogance. It's, frequ it's a frequent uh, occurrence in my, in my experience. But in the case of de Gaulle, it was arrogance on the Himalayan stage, uh, scale. And the, the significance, I think, of it is that Cassin was his honest broker 
in all the negotiations which were extremely difficult with the British and with many other groups too. By the way, during this period, he had intelligence about the safety of his family uh, from the, uh, the SOE. The organization was built up to infiltrate people into France. They worked through Madrid. It was Lisbon, Madrid, uh, and Bordeaux, which is where the clearinghouse. And he had information from his, his family. And again, when I read the letters after producing the French version, I got a lot of information about the anguish of the time. You can you imagine what London was like in 1940? Nobody in his right mind believed in Allied victory. They affirmed it. They stood by it. But they were all people with a death sentence suspended over their heads. And it's critical to recognize the anguish of London in 1940, how, how, how really terrible the uh, situation was for these varied exile groups, the Poles and the Norwegians and the Belgians uh, and the French, who grew uh, in number, uh, but not necessarily in power. And so when in 1941, this is 24th of September 1941, two things happened. Churchill decided in June of 1941, when Hitler created his new order for Europe, to announce a new order which was that of the Allies. And he had a conference on the 12th of June 1941 in which he set up uh, a, an Allied commission to look to the future, the way in which Hitler was looking to the future at the same time. In September, that commitment to look to the future was materialized in the second St. James's Conference. And there is the goal, uh, there is Cassin, at it. Now, why does he look so miserable? Because a half an hour before, de Gaulle announced that he was forming a provisional government. It was called something else, but that's what it was. And he was not going to be foreign secretary. He was going to handle education. Uh, again, there was a, a moment where he writes, he, he, he wrote dozens of letters of resignation that he never sent. And each time that he was, as it were, hurt, shoved, shoved aside, marginalized, he thought everything that in his life was, was gone. And what's, what's extraordinary about this is that de Gaulle was right. René Cassin didn't know how to use a knife. He wasn't a politician. He, wasn't, he didn't have a killer's instinct. He was a lawyer. He was a jurist and an upright man. And if you all survey the world of politics, I think the balance between the two uh, might be the point that uh, you would bear uh, uh, home from this particular lecture. There's Cassin on the right of de Gaulle, Admiral Muselier uh, immediately on his left over here, you know, striking anti-Semite uh, from Brittany, thought that, you know, that, that uh, having a Jew in France Libre was the worst thing imaginable, plotted throughout the war uh, to replace de Gaulle, largely supported by Franklin Roosevelt, who hated de Gaulle for reasons I've, I've never quite figured out, but nonetheless, these individuals who basically formed the face of the French Republic in exile were at war with each other. It was an extraordinary group of people who had enemies within as much as enemies without. Now after this humiliation of September where René Cassin stood in St. James's Palace uh, next to Eden and said that the business of creating a world for the future is the business of making it based upon human rights. So the very fact that he was, as it were, shunted to the side in the politics of free France gave him the space to develop his ideas on human rights. And what's more, gave him the time to serve on the Inter-Allied Commission on War Crimes. 
He would never have had the time had he been in a higher position within the organization. So de Gaulle, who insulted him, who humiliated him, did him the biggest favor of his life by opening a door to, as it were, amuse him for the rest of the war. De Gaulle and human rights, it's not a, a, a partnership made in heaven. Uh, but he was prepared to let Cassin serve as the jurist that he was on the Inter-Allied Commission on, human, uh, on War Crimes, which created two subcommissions, one to, to create Nuremberg and the other to create a group of uh, inter-allied uh, jurists to establish principles for a declaration of human rights, a bill of rights. Now, of course you can hear that there are echoes of support for the United States here. This is an echo of uh, the American way of doing things and the Americans paid for a good deal of uh, of the war, and to, to some degree, um, without them, I'm not sure it would have ended the way that it did. But the important point to bear in mind is that Cassin's failure was his success. And here he is, uh, de Gaulle said, since you don't have much to do, why don't you take a trip uh, and uh, fly the flag of free France in the Middle East and Africa, especially in the Middle East, because we don't want the British to steal our empire. So here he is in Aleppo, flying the French flag at the same time as the British army are negotiating with the, with, uh, with the people from Vichy about how to handle the uh, transfer of power between France and Britain. Now, the, this attempt, as it were, to f fly the flag had some other extraordinary images. Look at this image of Cassin over here, wearing a, a French uh, uh, colonial administrator's hat. He had lost a great deal of weight from uh, whatever intestinal disease he had done there, but he behaved in some way as a man who had, no, who had no function. He was simply going around reviewing troops. There was nothing very significant that, uh, that de Gaulle had given him to do. Now, immediately after uh, the end of the war, there was a great deal of him to do. Uh, from 1944 on, when the war in France ended, De Gaulle named him to two well, named him to one position that I'll talk to you about first, and then a second one. The first one was the, the chairmanship. It's called a vice president, technically, but the, but the president of the Conseil d'État. Now, this is an organization that mystifies me. It still does. Um, it is essential to the techno-structure of the French state. The Conseil d'État is the highest administrative court in France. It runs the civil service, and that's an awful lot of people. And so what Cassin had to do was l'épuration. He had to get rid of the collaborators who had operated the system of occupation, domination, and murder in the course of the Second World War. The second thing he had to do was to reestablish the principles of legality of the Republic and create the foundation for the myth that the Republic never ceased to operate, which, which is a myth. Of course it collapsed. But he gave it a form which is really astonishing. And again, one that separates, I think, French law from other law, but I, I'd be happy to, uh, to, to be corrected on this. What did he do? He established the principle that any object from exquisite works of art uh, to a tablecloth that was purchased from a Jewish family whose property was taken, whatever purchase of that property was a purchase in bad faith. All the material that had been stolen from Jewish families of the 80, 85,000 Jews who were murdered, and the French Jews who were murdered in the course of the Second World War, all of them lost all their property. Cassin's was, was saved. 
He wasn't killed. His sister was, but he wasn't killed. Those who were killed lost everything. And someone bought the books. You know, family, some of my family members were in the same position, but not in France, where they saw their own books in a bookshop. This has happened all over the world. But in France, what René Cassin did was to establish that such a purchase was an act of bad faith and without standing in law. And this was an extraordinary form of helping the victims of war again. And it is at that very moment that he was named to the United Nations uh, Committee that was set up under the Economic and Social Council from the beginning in San Francisco in 1945 to create a Declaration of Human Rights. Now we come to the destination uh, of my lecture. But there is a second level that I want to draw to your attention. The level uh, that I want to draw to your attention is his Jewish life. His Jewish life, as I say, was very limited before the Nazis. It was limited to the point that I have no trace of his joining Jewish organizations of any kind uh, before the Second World War. In 1948, when he was on the way to creating the Universal Declaration, he was honored by being made a member of the uh, French Academy, the Institut. It was the, moral, the Academy of Moral and Political Sciences that he was elected to. <clears throat> being a member of the Institut in France is a very big deal. And as a result of that publicity, he was written to by everyone in the world, really. He had friends all over, especially in, uh, in uh, Palestine and then in Israel. But one man wrote him to say, you have done honor to the Jewish people. And he wrote back to say, there are some honors I really don't deserve. And this is one of them. I rarely attend synagogue. I'm not a pratiquant. And it was only when the Nazis came that I began to defend the victims, the Jewish victims. And what I want you to know, that it is the oppression of the Jews that moved me into an understanding of human rights in a way that I hadn't understood it before. But he said, if there comes a day when the Jews are among the oppressors, I shall not be among them. So it is the victims of war, the Jews as victims, which is the fundamental, as it were, commitment to his Jewish values that lasted the rest of his life. And its physical embodiment was the Alliance Israelite Universelle. Now, let me just go back to 1943. De Gaulle was hated by Roosevelt. Roosevelt mattered to Churchill, so occasionally Churchill hated De Gaulle too. Not all the time, but some of the time. And as a result, they looked for a substitute, and the substitute was a man called Henri Giraud. And Giraud was a general superior to De Gaulle, and, and a man of, of great courage, and, and indeed of uh, moral fiber. Uh, and he was the candidate to get rid of De Gaulle. So in 1943, there's a war between De Gaulle and the resistance in France that, that supported De Gaulle, and Giraud, who was supported by the British and the American, to dominate the, as it were, the government that would come when France was liberated. Uh, and at that point, de Gaulle played a card. The card was who should be president of the Alliance Israelite Universelle. It certainly wasn't de Gaulle's to give it to him at all. It had to be the executive committee of this organization. But he named him president anyway. And when, de, when Kassan met, met the executive committee, they were delighted to have someone that important in uh, the resistance uh, at the core of their operation. And from 1943 till his death 
1976, he was president of the Alliance Israelite Universelle, and he became a Jewish statesman of the highest order <coughs> in the course of that. His commitment to Judaism was a commitment to the victims of the Second World War. Now, there's an important point before I tell the story of the Universal Declaration. There were others working in the same way as Cassin who distrusted it. One was a, a remarkable Polish lawyer named Raphael Lemkin. Lemkin had one vision in his life. You know, as, as it were, Cassin and Lemkin are very similar. Um, they both fit the famous um, uh, binary view of Isaiah Berlin. Uh, Lemkin was a hedgehog, if there ever was one. He knew one thing, and he knew it with his heart and soul, and that was that genocide was not a crime in international law and had to be. He invented the word. He created the movement that went towards the convention on genocide. He was there lobbying delegates throughout the story I'm about to tell you, and he saw Cassin as his enemy because he took, as it were, the attention away from the Convention on Genocide and threatened to, um, uh, as it were, derail the whole organization. This was utterly untrue. Cassin was there to work for both of these goals. But he made a decision very early on that if there were to be a Declaration of Human Rights, it had to be universal. And if it was to be universal, it could never be a convention. It would be voted down by the United States and by the Soviet Union and probably by every other country. Establishing a principle was the most that could be done. And hence his, his idea of creating a declaration, which he himself insisted not be an international declaration, but a universal declaration, was his way, as it were, of standing alongside Raphael Lemkin rather than, as it were, colliding uh, with him. Now, he worked entirely this extraordinary miracle of the Universal Declaration with Eleanor Roosevelt, and their friendship was of significant uh, 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 importance for the success of the project. She had the charisma and the standing of her, you know, the dead president, her, her husband. The two of them worked very well to do one thing, one simple thing, which was to prevent the Soviet bloc from, uh, from voting no. The Americans were all in favor of this. The British were unclear. It was, you know, not, not and, and the French were unclear too. Cassin had to struggle against his own foreign office in order to make sure that this unanimous vote, well, which was effectively unanimous and that there were no, no votes, uh, took place. Now, here's, by the way, the ceremonial sword of the French Institute, which he had, and it's one of the clues that I got before opening the letters of, uh, of his, uh, his second wife's daughter, that indeed they were lovers for many years. This is a, a sword that he used as a member of the French Institute, um, and um, you can see on the grip a winged woman signifying peace and love dedicated to Guylaine. And I don't know how, how people missed that in 1948, uh, but there it was, uh, and she was alongside uh, Cassin at the time. Now, once the Universal Declaration of Human Rights came to the United Nations, the vote finally indicating no, uh, no votes, eight abstentions, the Universal Declaration established three principles which are critical. The first is there is a separation and a distinction between humanitarian law and human rights law. Cassin's idea is that humanitarian law, Geneva Conventions, are the laws of war. The Universal Declaration, human rights are the laws of peace. That human rights 
are a domain outside of wartime that describe the limits to the sovereignty of states to maltreat their own citizens or the citizens of adjacent countries. The second principle was that there were a series of rules of behavior that were superior to state constitutions. And he called these les principes généraux de droit, the general principles of law which make a legal system possible. And the third thing that he believed was that the Universal Declaration was an elaboration of the Charter of the United Nations, which needed time to be turned into what's called customary law. And customary law is the law of all states. He succeeded in laying the basis for that operation in the United Nations. But it's not the United Nations that succeeded in making, as it were, the Universal Declaration what it is today. It's the European, the African, and the American courts, the regionalization of human rights that have done the job. Uh, he did that very interestingly uh, in the 1950s. The, well, first we can start earlier. Winston Churchill is voted out of office in 1945. He needs a cause. The cause is anti-communism. This doesn't surprise anybody. But the vehicle for this is Europe. In 1948, at the Hague Convention, in 1948, he established a conservative uh, block throughout Europe some of it wanted it was a Christian conservative bloc, not all of it, to create a European Convention on Human Rights. Definitely anti-Soviet, that's what it's for. And if you can imagine, right after the communist takeover of Czechoslovakia, there were many people who understood that. Now that project, Churchill dropped like a hot potato as soon as he came back to power in 1951, when he was committed to human rights out of office. Uh, when he was in office, it mattered not at all. The critical thing is that once the European Convention was established, the European Court would come into existence when first eight and then 10 nations ratified it. It not only had to be voted on and supported through the Council of Europe, which created the European Convention, but it had to be ratified by the parliaments of individual states. And that number was reached in 1958. The European Court came of, into existence in 1959, and René Cassin was not the first president, that was a, a British judge, but the second one. And in 1965, when he became president of the European Court, he signed its first decisions. There are three stories that are in the, uh, the book, uh, the English version of the book that's just come out again, that came out of the family, I didn't really know much about it, but his feeling about how slow and steady the judicial construction of Europe would be, are very powerful and very profound. That Europe is not just a currency or a trading regime, but it is a judicial construction which requires the states who want to be part of the European movement signing in on the European Convention on Human Rights. This, of course, is not the whole story of Europe by any means, but it is part of the story of the difficulty of the entry of Turkey, for instance, uh, to this day in coming in. Turkey, by the way, signed the document from the beginning, but then withdrew from it uh, later on in the 1960s. Now, the final point that I want to make is that it is the work as the author of the Universal Declaration, as president of the vice president, effectively president of the Conseil d'Etat, and as the European, um, as the president of the European Council on Human Rights, that he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1968. 
When I went to work in, in um, Oslo to find the documentation of that, I was hit by the 60-year rule. I couldn't do it. At the time, I was writing. I couldn't see the papers. But the president of that institute in Oslo was a very, very kind man. And he told me, you can't see the documents. I'm going out to lunch. They're on my desk, and I'm not closing the door. <laughs> Just don't cite them. So you'll find, those of you who read the book, and I hope you do, those of you who read the book, you'll find this kind of circumlocution. We, of course, cannot see the documentation because the statute of limitations and so on. However, we might imagine what the thought processes were of the Nobel Commission uh, who had a look at the story. And the story has three parts in it. René Cassin was a great leader of the resistance. René Cassin is the author of a new theory of state sovereignty in which there's a trade-off. More peace for less sovereignty. And the third point is, he represents the victims of the Shoah. It mattered in Norway. It mattered to those judges who were members of the Stortung, you know, of the, of the Norwegian parliament. It mattered that he spoke for the Jewish victims of war, as well as understanding that Jewish rights are universal if they're not at all. Now let me just try to draw some, some conclusions. There is, by the way, there's a wonderful little entry in the uh, Alliance Israelite Universelle uh, Minutes archive saying, uh, the president has just rung to say he'll be uh, delayed a little while. He needs another 20 minutes because he's just got the Nobel Peace Prize. And this is the moment that he got the, he got the telegram. Um, and that's the moment in 1968 when he read it. There, I have a, a recording, which I'll be happy to share with any of you, of a speech he gave at 81 years old uh, with a force in which he said there are some principles and human rights are among them for which it is an honor to uh, offer to give your life. It, the strength of his speech in, in Oslo is really quite astonishing. Uh, thereafter, of course, he became a man of, of great distinction, and especially in his defense of Israel. Now, I want to talk about this separately, because here he is with his, he never had a son, but he had a, a uh, as it were, um, a younger man who was an unusual fellow called Andre Shuraki. Shuraki was an Algerian Jew uh, who translated the Bible into French. Um, and who wrote poetry and law and all kinds of things and um, was arrogant, difficult. Uh, he had um, something of a, uh, uh, of a hunchback. Uh, Kassan naturally um, defended him within the organization. Uh, and it was Shuraki who in introduced um, Kassan to most of the major leaders of the state. He was friends with um, Ben Svi, the second president. He was friends with Ben Gurion. Uh, and indeed try to help construct uh, the project that was never completed of a constitution for the state of Israel. He also was extremely uh, close uh, to the Vatican uh, in two respects. One was Paul VI, who really did believe in, um, in ecumenical uh, change, and the other was John XXIII. Now, John XXIII had been papal nuncio in Paris. He had also saved Jewish lives in Turkey. He, he's one of the very few um, Popes, who has a clear record for being just among the nations. I'm really surprised that the Israeli uh, committee that deals with it uh, have neglected. You know, the, the attacks on Pius XII, I think, are, are, are justified. But just as justified is the honoring of a great pope, John XXIII, who opened the gates of the Second um, uh, Congress, uh, basically the, the, you know, the uh, the Vatican was transformed 
by the work of two uh, remarkable popes, and Cassin was among their friends. Here's Cassin dancing at a Juris conference in 1968, which again, I think is a wonderful example of the man. There is Guylaine as a, by the way, his second wife, as a film star in the 1930s. She married a, a British man named Conokie, uh, and he insisted that she leave the film industry on the grounds that marriages never survive it. She did that, and they lived in Scotland for a while until the Second World War when her husband got drafted. He was a film cameraman. Unfortunately, he was sent to Burma, and he stayed in Burma throughout the war. He had no choice in the matter. And it was at that time that uh, his wife, uh, Guylaine, met uh, Cassin. But before this, what, what I just wanted to mention to you, when Konaki convinced uh, um, his wife, Guylaine, to leave, she was about to star in a great film called Quai des Brumes, uh, really one of the classics. And she dropped out. And instead, uh, a young actress got the break of her life, Michel Morgan, who became one of the great French film stars of the 20th century because of Guylaine's marriage. There is Guylaine in 1943. Uh, that's her, her, her resistance passport. And here she is in 1944 in France Libre. Now, he married her, as I said, in his uh, hospital bed in um, Salpetriere Hospital in, in Paris. Um, and it was an ecumenical marriage. Once more, the Republican more than the Jew. There was a rabbi, Daniel Fari, who was a, a reform rabbi, a liberal rabbi in Paris. And there was a Catholic uh, a priest who both performed, who performed two ceremonies at exactly the same time. Uh, and both of them insisted on this, that his idea of, of Jewishness uh, was that Jewishness represented universal values rather than a certain way of practicing the faith. Now, we all know that that's not everybody's answer by a long shot, but nonetheless, it was his. And this is Guylaine in 1970, um, after um, uh, the two of them uh, had gone to, uh, uh, to Israel. What did they do in Israel? They opened, inaugurated a school uh, in Givat HaTechmoshed in Jerusalem which is part of Jerusalem that was taken by the Israeli state. This is not the West Bank, this is Jerusalem. And here's the point. Um, the French government refused to be present at the opening on the grounds that the school was across the Green Line. They weren't part of it. They had been, you know, Cassin, as I said, with Nobel Prize winner, he was as eminent as anybody could be, and yet the French state said he's not standing up for his principles. I think there's a point there. Cassin was a European who believed that Palestinians had the rights of victims of war and Jews had the right to a state. This is the view of a generation. It's you know, not a view I think now that we could, we could necessarily take in the same way. But he believed that Palestinians had humanitarian rights. I loathe to say that he didn't think they had human rights, but they didn't, in his view, have a right to a state the way Jews did because of what they suffered in the Shoah. The distinction was also there in his work in the Conseil d'Etat. There were many instances, I don't know the number, but surely they're in the thousands, of the practice of torture in the French army during the Algerian insurrection. Cassin was president of the Conseil d'Etat, 1944 to 1960, throughout the whole, virtually the whole period. Not a word about torture in Algeria came out of the Conseil d'Etat. Maybe it, he couldn't do it. Maybe he wouldn't do it. I don't know. But what I see is a man of his generation who was European in, in, in his point of view, fundamentally European, and who believed fundamentally that people who were not European had the rights of victims of war. 
The Algerians had rights. They were just not the same rights as those which he described as Israeli rights or Jewish rights in Palestine. Now, is this a limitation of a man of, of many parts? I think possibly. The business of writing a biography is not hagiography, hey, is not to sanctify the man, but to imagine him in his life. And for that, I believe we have to go back to one of the most touching things that he asked Guylaine to do. He believed, and this is a, you know, as the older he got, the, the more he liked honors. It's not, not unknown in this society either. Um, and one of the honors he really, really, really wanted, because he had virtually everything else, was to be buried in the Panthéon. Why did he want to be buried in the Panthéon? Because he represented the generation of men who fought in the First World War. He also wanted to be buried in the Panthéon because, once it happened in 1987, he's the only Jew in the Panthéon. Nobody else. But what is it that he asked Guylaine to do? He asked her to put into his casket a BBC recording he did in 1940 about the Battle of the Marne and the men who had died by his side who would remain with him for the rest of his life. The line from the Great War to the Universal Declaration, in my view, is an absolutely straight one, but it is braided together with a range of experiences which enable us to conclude that, that Cassin was a man who touched most of the great moral issues of the 20th century, at least three quarters of the 20th century. The last thing he signed in his life was uh, a, um, a petition for the right of free uh, exit for the Jews of the Soviet Union. The last thing he, he signed. And this is the a letter he wrote in the last year of his life. And it is extraordinary because it makes my point in a way that, and again, this was in uh, the, the papers of his uh, daughter-in-law uh, that I only came to after the French edition uh, had come out. And what it describes, this is the last page uh, about it, um, is when he was wounded and had a hole in his stomach and in his side and in his, and in his arm, uh, he was approached by the cure of Don Sevran, which is a little village near saint mihiel And this man turned to him and said, may I give you, my son, the, uh, the last uh, rites? And he said, uh, uh, I'm Jewish, and he said, uh, the Lord really has no distinctions in mind uh, when he will welcome those who come before him. Uh, and so he uh, said to uh, Cassin, can I leave you with this? If, and this is, this is what it says. If this is your day to come before uh, your maker, you should know that he is a judge full of love. And it is that message that we face a judge uh, full of love uh, that Cassin wanted uh, to put, as it were, uh, in his, in his uh, uh, casket when, he, when his ashes were brought uh, to the, uh, when his remains were brought to the, uh, to the Pantheon. I like that phrase to sum up the life of a man uh, who thought he had done nothing time and again and who wound up creating a grammar of human rights that still exists today and is used for other purposes by other people who don't fully appreciate how its central message is pacifist. The early human rights movement was a movement against war 
organized by those who knew what it was in their bones, in their bodies, and who believed that only a change in the nature of state sovereignty would create a bulwark against war. Human rights have been many things in the years after René Cassin died, but its pacifist message has faded away. It strikes me that it's worth returning to that message, if not, uh, not alone by any means for the tragedy of Israel and the Palestinians, uh, but for the explosiveness of mass violence all over the world. What Cassin did was to bring the vision of a soldier uh, into the life of a militant for peace. And it is that message that I'd like to leave you with today. He was a Jewish pacifist warrior who created a universal message, much closer, I think, to the prophets of the Bible, maybe to Spinoza uh, than to others. He was what Isaac Deutscher once called a non-Jewish Jew, someone whose Judaism was so deep that it wasn't even on the surface. Uh, the Nazis brought it to the surface and made it part of the universal message that I've tried to bring you today. Thank you very much. Thank you.